Good morning and welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. We pray that you will be blessed and encounter the Lord Jesus Christ as we spend some time together. I'd ask you to turn um, to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And I, I would encourage you to, to fetch your Bibles. Just always have half an eye on the text while I'm preaching. That's the best way to do it. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as, as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's talk about before and after photographs. We're all attracted to and interested in before and after stories. Stories of transformation and change when a person is translated from an undesirable state or place to one that is better. And you can see these before and after photographs all over social media. Here they are, here are the photographs of me before and after I lost 20 kgs of weight. Before, I had a low self-esteem. It was at an all-time low, but now I feel so much better about myself. It seems like people are a lot more friendly. I've got more friends. Things are so much better. Or here I am, before and after I started working out at the gym. Or before and after I had a facelift. And of course, I'm speaking hypothetically there. <laughs> um, as you can imagine, I've never had a facelift I have had some before and after. Folks, this is me after about 30 years of hard toil and aging. Um, I can show you a photo of my hair before all of that happened, but only for a small fee. So at their core, these stories are stories of salvation. The person was saved from something undesirable to something desirable. And the state that they were saved from was generally miserable. The state that they have been saved to is better. I wonder why we're attracted to these stories of salvation. It seems to be such a part of our culture and our society worldwide. I think it's because that these stories of transformation are a shadow of the ultimate salvation that every human being longs for. 
humankind knows that something has gone fundamentally wrong in our relationships with one another, in our relationships with the environment. We need some sort of ultimate salvation and we're all trying to get it. And this um, ultimate salvation is what we're going to be talking about today. Let's consider it um, in three headings. First of all, what is it that we are saved from? Then who is it that does the saving? Who are we saved by? And what is it that we are saved to? From, by, and to. Let's start with what we're saved from. Because after all, we need to know that we're not being saved from the frying pan into the fire. So what are we saved from and what are we saved to? Paul paints this picture of our state before the ultimate salvation. And believe me, it's not a pretty picture. I've summarized it using four words today. Dead, disobedient, deceived, and doomed. Dead, disobedient, deceived, and doomed. Let's have a look at the first one dead. He writes in the first verse, and you were dead. Now he's writing to the Ephesians who are very much alive and referring to a state in which they were in sometime in the past when they were dead. So obviously he can't be talking about a physical death here. He's talking about some sort of a relational breakdown. If I'm in a room with a corpse then I am dead to that corpse and that corpse is dead to me. There's no ways that I can relate to a corpse. There's no ways that that corpse can relate to me because there is an unbridgeable gap. I am alive and the corpse is dead. We were dead. What was it, folks, that led to this death? Paul tells us, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. The trespasses and sins led to the death. Now it's very tempting to try and get different shades of meaning for those two words, trespasses and sins. But I believe that what Paul is doing here is he's putting them together to express the variety and the dominance, if you like, of our disobedience, of our trespasses and sins. We're involved in all kinds of trespasses and sins. Now, how do these trespasses and sins lead to death? Let's think about this, first of all, in terms of a relationship between a husband and wife. They got married. They have a good relationship with one another. And then the husband goes and he cheats on his wife. He destroys the trust on which that relationship is built by having an affair. He betrays his wife's trust. And as a result of that, because he has sinned against him, the relationship breaks down. He is now dead to her, and in a sense, she is dead to him. There needs to be some sort of reconciliation, and we hope some sort of restoration of the relationship as it was before. And it was the sin, it was the transgression that caused the breakdown in that relationship. Take Adam and Eve, for example. Adam and Eve were living in paradise on earth. This beautiful universe that God had created for them to live in. And they used to walk with him on a daily basis in the cool of the evening. Could we find a better picture of a living relationship? Of course, 
God, because he had created everything, said to Adam and Eve, there's certain guidelines, there's certain safety rails that you need to live within. You can eat from any tree in the garden, but you can't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what he was saying there, what that tree symbolized, is that God gets to tell us what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad for us. <laughs> but as human beings, we don't like being told what to do. We don't like being told what we can and what we can't do. And so Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They sinned against him. And look at the effect. Before, they would walk with God in the cool of the evening. Now they have been expelled from the Garden of Eden and there is an angel with a flaming sword keeping them out. They were dead to their father. They were dead to God. Think of the prodigal son. He said to his father, give me my inheritance so that I can use it to go and live somewhere separate from you. And so from that time onwards, he was dead to his father and his father was dead to him. Um, if you look at Luke 15 verse 24, once he returned, the father said, my son was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And then they began to celebrate. So I hope that you can see from those three pictures what it means to be dead in our transgressions and sins, our trespasses and sins. Remember that Paul uses that phrase to express the variety and the dominance of our disobedience. And it was those things that caused our death. Let me give you another picture. One of the terrible things that has happened in recent years in Zimbabwe is that poachers have chosen to poison water holes with arsenic so that when the elephants come down to drink, they then die from the poison. And there have been some terrible pictures shown on the internet of elephants literally dead in the water that has poisoned them. Folks, that is a picture of us dead in our transgressions and sins as a result of our disobedience. And so this build a, builds a bridge now to the next word, also beginning with the D, disobedient. Paul writes that we were walking in our trespasses and sins. Now, whenever a New Testament writer says that somebody is walking in a sin, it means that that sin has become habitual. It has become a characteristic of their lifestyle. It has become a part of them. So we were living, we were controlled by trespasses and sins. But where did all this disobedience emanate from? It's a very good question. Look at verse 3. Paul writes there, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. What is the flesh? In some Bibles, it's translated as the sinful nature. But we have this flesh aspect to us, even after we've born again, been born again. And I can't imagine that a born again person would have a sinful nature. No, they would have a regenerated nature, and yet they still have the flesh. So what is the flesh? Well, I can tell you what it isn't. It isn't this. It isn't meat and, and muscle and sinew. But I can't tell you exactly what it is. But what I can tell you is what it does. The flesh has found a way to control us, to captivate us, to tempt us to disobey God. How does it do it? 
it does it through sinful passions. The flesh is a source of passions. These passions emanate from the flesh. And it's, it's, it's fine to have good passions, but these are bad passions. These are not passions for the things of God and, the, and for God himself. These are not passions for good things. These are passions for things that have been forbidden by God. And so verse 3 refers to the passions of the flesh. And then it goes on to talk about carrying out the desires of the mind and the body. And that word desire is another word for passion. So the flesh produces evil passions and desires in your body and mind, tempting you to carry them out, tempting you to live and to walk in those things to indulge them continuously as a matter of lifestyle or modus operandi. Let me give you an example. Yesterday, I went down to the kitchen to have breakfast. And usually, Gail and I um, have a banana with our breakfast. But unfortunately, there was only one banana left on top of the fridge. Immediately, my, my flesh produced a passion or a desire for that whole banana. And you see, that was a passion and a desire that was counter what God wanted me to do. God says, treat other people the way you would like to be treated. Ian, how would you like to be treated? I would like Gail to share the last banana with me. Either give it to me in its entirety or cut it in half. And so if I gave in to the flesh that desire to have the banana entirely for myself, and if I started getting into the habit of doing that, putting myself before Gail as a, a, a way of life, then you could see that I would be living in accordance with the flesh. So, what have we been saved from? First of all, we've been saved from death. Second of all, we've been saved from a lifestyle of disobedience and domination by the flesh, giving in to the flesh and its passions and its desires, the flesh being the source of those things. But we've also been saved, folks, let's move on to the next word, from deception, from being deceived. Folks, when a person makes a habit of carrying out the passions of the flesh, when this becomes a lifestyle, Paul tells us what and who that person is following. First of all, what? He says that you are following the course of this world. Folks, Christians are not meant to do that. You know what it says in Hebrews chapter 12? It says that we should have our eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our face, that we should run the race marked out for us. God has a race marked out for us, and it's not the course that is set out by the world. What is the world? Well, the world is the global system of politics, economics, business, um, ethics and morality that stands in opposition to the kingdom of God. Yes, there are good things in the world, but it's that aspect of the world system that stands in opposition to God. That world has set out a course for us to run. And where do you think that course leads? It doesn't lead to a happy place. And who do you think has led out that course? Who set it out? Now we come to the who. It's Satan. He says here 
that when you live in the passions of the flesh, Satan is at work in you. He says he is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What a lamentable state we were in. Dead, disobedient, deceived. And it should probably come as no surprise that since we were following Satan, we were also doomed. When Paul writes that we were by nature children of wrath, he means that we were headed for destruction in God's righteous judgment. And this wasn't just a couple of things that we had and that we hadn't done. But it was because our disobedience to, to God had become a very matter of our nature, of our essence, of our being. We were, by nature, children of wrath. Dead, disobedient, deceived, and doomed. But thank heaven, thank heaven we come to verse 4, which begins with those precious words, but God. Who is the one who saves us? It's God. God is the one who saves us. And there's some beautiful things that we can learn about God in these verses. We have all willingly rejected or ignored God in the world that he created. How could we do that? How could we willingly ignore him and reject him when there is evidence of him all around us? And then we willingly rebelled against God by living, just simply by living, without reference to him. Did God need to rescue us? Did he have, was he incomplete in some way that he needed to rescue us? No. Did God have to rescue us? No, he wasn't compelled to do it. We couldn't compel him to do it. There's no force in the universe that would be big and strong enough to compel God to rescue us. No, but God, being rich in mercy, God had compassion on us. He didn't want to leave us dead in our trespasses, even though this is what we deserved. He had every right to punish us with eternal separation from himself. After all, this was what we had chosen when we rejected and rebelled against him. But God, who is rich in mercy. That's the first characteristic of God that we learn about. The second, where did that mercy and that uh, compassion and that forgiveness come from? What was the cause of his desire to save us? Well, it was the great love of God with which he loved us. Because of his great love with which he loved us, the love of God was the cause. And so this God who saves us is merciful. He's compassionate. He's forgiving towards us. And all of this because of his great love for us. Now, you might ask, why, is, why does Paul emphasize the fact that it's God who saves us? Well, think of a corpse. When a, when a person is dead, there is no ways that they can raise themselves to life. And yet every human being is looking to be his own savior and to find a savior apart from God. Because if they turn to God as their savior, then they will have to return to a place of submission to him. And that's not what human beings want to do. And yet every human being, the whole of mankind knows that something has gone horribly wrong. We know that at a deep 
and profound level that we have become unlovable, unworthy, and insignificant. We know these things. And so we work, we work tirelessly and endlessly to be restored to a state of being perfectly loved, perfectly valued, and perfectly significant. We try to save ourselves through work and accomplishment. I've got a quotation here from a book by, written by Madonna. A quote. She says, My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me, the fear of being mediocre. I push past one spell of it and discover myself to be a special human being, but then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Folks, have you ever driven, driven up to a meeting? I can remember that I used to do this. Heaven forbid that I did. But I'd drive up to a meeting when I was still in engineering and in contracting, and I would compare my vehicle with everybody else's vehicle. Why did I need to assure myself that I was a person of worth and value because of the vehicle that I drove. But let me tell you that I'm not alone in this. Everybody is trying to prove something through their work, through what they have achieved by comparing their house with someone else's house so that they can establish where they are in the pecking order, whether they are a person of value, whether they are a person who is deserving of love. We also do it by trying to be better than others. Just listen to these words from Tim Keller. He says, By comparing ourselves to other people and trying to make ourselves look better than others, we are boasting, trying to recommend ourselves, trying to create a self-esteem resume because we're desperate to fill our sense of inadequacy and emptiness. The ego is busy, so busy all the time. It's so tempting for me, folks, to go onto the Harvest YouTube site and see how many people have viewed my sermon as compared to the number of people that have viewed Craig's sermon. We all do this. Why is it that we need a small little figure there to prove that we are someone of value and worth? It's because, in my case, I am tempted to use my work and my ministry as a means of salvation, of a means of acquiring the value and the self-worth and the lovability that I lack unless I find it in God. Brothers and sisters, please hear me on this. The only way to be saved is for God, have a look at verse 5, to make you alive together with Christ. Paul adds a, a little parenthesis here. He says, by grace you have been saved. You can see it there in verse 5. He's tempted actually to get ahead of himself by explaining the means of salvation right in the middle of explaining the who and the to. But suffice to say, and we'll get onto this later on, salvation is a gift bestowed by God. It is not a salary earned by us. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. So it's God. God is the one who saves. Period full stop. But what are we saved to? We've had a look at what we're saved from. We've had a look at who we are saved by. Let's have a look at what we are saved to. In verses 4 to 6, there is a progression. Let me read it. 
with some bits just removed. Starting in verse 4. But God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christ was put to death in your place to take the punishment for your sin. But God raised Christ from the dead. So when you trust God to save you through Christ, God identifies your death with the death of Christ. Your old person is crucified with Christ on the cross, dead and buried. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, you too are made alive together with Christ. But it doesn't end there. <laughs> Folks, this is just the start. Just consider Christ. He wasn't simply made alive. He was also promoted. Look at what we learned last time. This comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through to 22. It says there, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet. Wasn't, wasn't that an incredible promotion? Now, if Christ is seated at the right hand of God and we are seated with Christ, where are we? We're there. We're right there in the very throne room of God, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Our relationship has been restored. We are now alive to God so that we can find in God our value and our self-worth. We can find ourselves to be perfectly loved. We can find ourselves to be significant because He has prepared a life of good works in advance for us to do. We'll see this later on in chapter 2. That's where we are. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Now, I can't really explain to you how this happens. All I know is that when we are in Christ, our space intersects with God's space right here in us. <laughs> so that we are now in God's space, in that multidimensional space in which God exists with our relationship with Him restored, seated there. And if this position is a position of ultimate power and authority, that's what we have been saved to. We have been saved to a position of relationship and ultimate power and authority. We need to think through the implications of this. And I'm just going to give you a little bit of a starter today. But you need to do it yourself for your own life. I'm thinking, for example, of some folk in our congregation who are having a really hard time at work because they deal with people who are abusive and nasty on a daily basis. The great thing is that whereas Satan will try and use those experiences to deceive these people into thinking that they are worthless, that they are not people of value, they can remind themselves that they are seated with God in heavenly places, in a position of ultimate authority. So they don't need to be defensive. They don't need to respond in the flesh. The flesh will be stirring up passions of anger, but they can respond in the spirit, controlled by the spirit, because they are seated with God, with Christ 
in heavenly places. And then I'm thinking of other people. There are so many folk who are struggling at the moment in their places of work and in their businesses because the field that God has given them to farm, in inverted commas, literally or metaphorically, that area, that territory that God has given them to work in, to glorify Him, has weeds and thorn bushes in it. There are things happening in Zimbabwe that are, that, that, that are causing them not to be able to honor and glorify God but they are seated with Christ in heavenly places. They have the authority because after all, what did we learn last time? That God has put everything under the feet of Christ and God has given Christ as head over everything to the church. And so whatever your territory is, and there will inevitably be weeds and thorn bushes in it at the moment. God has given you that territory as your inheritance, as a place where He can be honored and glorified, as a place of provision for you and your family whilst you're here on earth. You can take authority over those weeds and those thorn bushes. Here's another implication, and we'll close with this one. Maybe you have a relative who is starting to struggle with dementia or maybe a relative who has Alzheimer's. And what happens in that case is this is a sickness of the mind. The neurological pathways, the physical bits and pieces and nuts and bolts of the mind are not functioning as they should. But the essential person is still there. The essential person, the indestructible person that is going to live with God forever in eternity, where is that person? seated with Christ in heavenly places. This is a huge comfort to us. Even though things in our body and particularly in our mind, I think sometimes we're afraid of that, even those things might be disintegrating. We are still seated with God in heavenly places and we have an eternity stretching out before us with God, alive to Him, in relationship with Him, enjoying Him, finding in Him everything that we need for our love and our significance and our worth. Let's just spend a few moments praying about this. Father God, we, we know that you've given us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of you. And so we're asking that the eyes of everybody's hearts would be enlightened so that they would see these things, so that they would grasp these things, that, that these truths would become experiential in their lives. I pray that each person would get a grasp in their workplace, in their family, maybe teaching their children's or children on a daily basis, maybe trying to teach over a difficult connection on the internet, that they are seated with you in heavenly places. It's all going to be okay. And also they have the authority and the power to deal with the weeds and the thorn bushes in their territory. Lord, please reveal these things to us. Help us to live as we are, as we truly are, sons and daughters of the King, seated in your very presence with all the authority and the power that you have given to Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for spending time with us. And we will continue to pray that these truths will settle in your heart. And we look forward to spending some more time in the weeks ahead talking about what is still in store for us in the book of Ephesians. Thank you for signing in and cheers for now.